Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. This is the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day again that we can gather, not only on a memorial day where we remember those who have served for this country, but every Sunday being memorial day where we remember that you served for us. We see in the book of Hebrews that great message of what you've done for us, and we thank you for it. So bless our time this morning as we study your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've been with us for the past number of months, you know we've worked our way through the book of Hebrews and come a long way through it. And as we do, we've had a number of sermons that, frankly, may start to sound a lot alike. Now, if you think that uh, every sermon you've heard here over the past several months has been unique and fresh and different, then you've probably not been paying close attention. Because they've all been very much the same. And that's what's making it harder now as we get into chapter 10 to see and say something that's unique and different. Because what the author of Hebrews is doing, and this is really a sermon as we've said, he's preaching this sermon. He's making one point over and over and over again. And that is that Christ is our great high priest. And he on the cross made that final and perfect sacrifice that does away with all of the other Old Testament sacrifices. That's the message of Hebrews as we've come to it and seen it. Now, the book of Hebrews itself is clearly the most Old Testament of all the New Testament books. It's a book which relies so much on an understanding of the Old Testament. And so it's important for us as we come together each week to put this book, this sermon, in a context to understand the world in which the book of Hebrews would have been heard and received. And that's why Hebrews is difficult for a lot of people. For example, if you took the book of James and gave it to a a normal college student, they could read through it and get the point of what James is saying, the moral imperatives that James is giving. But the book of Hebrews is speaking of a world very different from our own. So we have to hear it with the ears that the first century Jew would have heard it. The great... Old Testament Hebrew scholar John Walton has said that we have to uh, uh, look to the scripture and hear it in that context. And remember that the, the Bible was written for us, but not written to us. It's written for our benefit, but it's written to an ancient world very different from our own. So as you come to Hebrews, you have to remember that the people would have heard it in their own culture and world. And that world would have been one in which they were following, with a temple, the Old Testament sacrifices. They would have lived in a world in which they knew that the sacrifices were being made 
by the high priest yearly at the Day of Atonement and daily by other priests on their behalf. They would have understood what that was. Now imagine now, and this is what Hebrews is getting at, those Jewish people who became believers and left that world to accept the reality of what Christ has done for them. That would have been a very dramatic change in their life. They would have seen their life up to that point as a very regular, normal, consistent thing going on. Sacrifices being made on behalf of their sin. This daily reminder. They would have known this. So there's a repetition to it. There's a reminder continually of their own sins. There was a calendar that kept everything and everybody in sync with one another. Uh, This past week, my wife and I spent in Indiana with our grandchildren. And we got there late on Saturday night. And so Sunday morning comes and we decided with the family that we would not go to church but spend time together on Sunday morning. Now my grandson every Sunday, goes to church. He's three years old. He goes to church regularly. On Sunday came, and we were there, and he thought that that was Sunday and he should be going to church, but they didn't. So he kind of in his mind set that aside, thinking, maybe I'm a day off. Maybe this is still Saturday. He doesn't know his days yet, really. Well, then the next day came, Monday came, and he's now beginning to talk about what happened to church. We never went, thinking we should have gone by now. Well, that's how it was in the Jewish mind for their people, their children. They would have known these things were happening on their behalf regularly. And you can imagine a father who had become a believer now, no longer doing these things for his children. And his son may have looked up to him and said, Dad, why don't we do that? Why have we now separated ourselves from our community of other other Jews? Why are we not doing and following the Old Testament and its sacrifices? Why have we abandoned all of that? Becoming a believer in the first century would have turned their world upside down. It would have been a very dramatic, in fact, for many people, traumatic experience. And that's why Hebrews is written to remind those believers, don't turn back. Because there would have always been that call to turn back and go back to what you had. Go back into your Jewish community. Reacquaint yourself and absorb yourself into that world where your friends were. Remember now, the Jewish world was a very tight-knit group. And even though they had many different theological and doctrinal differences and disputes, they were still Jews and knew that they were God's called people. And they were God's called people out of a world which was hostile. It was a Roman world. A A Roman world controlled them. And so by being Jewish, you had your group, you had your community. When you became a Christian now... Early on in the first years, you were seen as part of that same Jewish world, but maybe a different sect within Judaism, another different group. But as the years went by, the decades, 10, 15, 20 years, Christianity clearly began to separate, become something very different. They were seen not to be Jewish any longer. And for that reason, Christianity began to be persecuted by the Roman government because they were no longer protected, as the Jews were because the Jewish religion was so ancient, the Romans protected it and let them have the religion. Remember, the Jewish religion, uh, you go back in the year 1000 with David as the king, uh, and before that, uh, another 400 years with Moses, that's far older than Rome was. And so the Romans respected Judaism. But now Christianity is something different. And so there's this tension that they had. And so the author of Hebrews is warning and reminding these believers to not turn back. Now, just by way of a brief uh, sort of rehearsal, in chapter 2, verse 1, he makes this point again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
He's warning them, don't drift away from it. You've heard it. You've got the truth. Don't abandon it because there's, that always, there's always that temptation. And then in chapter 3, uh, in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So that's the message of Hebrews. To you Jewish believers that become Christians, stick with it, stay with it. Don't give up on it, because that's where the truth is, and you knew it. You knew the truth, you, were, you received the truth in Christ, don't give up on that. The message of Hebrews is reminding them this. Now, none of us have this same sort of temptation. None of us were raised in a world where there was a temple and sacrifices being made, so we don't have that direct application to us. But we do, in our own ways, have a temptation for many new believers to go back into the world that they were saved out of. There's always that draw to go back to where your friends were the friends you had in college, the family that you had, and maybe becoming a believer pulls you out of that and you initially recognize that as being good, but now you look at it and say, man, that's where my friends were. That's where my loved ones were. That's where I had fun. And so the same message applies in a different way. Stick with it and stay with it. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired. Stay with the truth as you've received it. And so this book of Hebrews in chapter 10 now begins to wrap up this one great message that Jesus is our great high priest. And so as we come to chapter 10 now, beginning in verse 1, we're going to see this message being developed again further. Now chapter 10 is going to end this long section. Of course, as you think, chapter 11 uh, is the great hall of faith, and their application is going to be made. And so it's going to kind of change its tenor and its tone and its direction when we hit chapter 11. But chapter 10 is going to say things that we've said already many times before. Again, remember, Hebrews is a sermon. And in any one sermon, you want to hear one great idea, one idea that persists and permeates. A good sermon doesn't have 47 points and 47 good thoughts. It has one great grand theme that you carry out with you as you leave. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. That's what this sermon is doing. And so let's just do what he's doing and follow the same thought again. So we come to chapter 10, verse 1. And in this passage, we see that we have in Christ a high priest that is merciful. We have a high priest that is merciful. Again, in chapter 2, and that's what uh, the author had initially made a point of much earlier on. In verse 14, he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This theme of Jesus as our great and merciful high priest has been with us all along. And in chapter 10, verse 1, he continues to further develop this same theme, the same idea. He says again in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He speaks of the law as being a shadow, a shadow that only points somewhere. And he's making the point that you can stack shadow upon shadow upon shadow and you still never have a reality. There's still never any substance to any shadow that you have, no matter how many shadows you get. There's still a shadow. That's all there is. But he says also there's a reality, and that reality we see in Christ. Now, this is, of course, the first century, and in what's called a Hellenized world, where Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek thought may have been well known. I wouldn't doubt that many of the believers that heard this would have thought of Plato's uh, cave, Remember, Plato wrote the book, The Republic, and in The Republic, he talked about a cave. And it makes a good illustration, although Plato used it for a different reason. But he pictured a cave in which there were a number of people who were chained to the ground, looking at a great wall. And behind them was a fire. And between the fire behind them, there would be people that would walk back and forth, carrying things back and forth. And so these people lived sitting on the ground, looking at this wall with shadows going back and forth. And they would see animals go back and forth and people go back and forth and they'd play a game. They'd play a game trying to figure out what would be coming next. And as time passed, one guy might be better at the game than the others, but they would look at these things happening. And because that's all they ever knew and that's all they ever experienced, they thought that's what reality really was. But then one day, one of those who is chained escapes from his chains and gets out of the cave. And when he does, he sees that outside there's a great reality. He sees that the cave was lit by a small fire. But outside of the cave, there's a sun that lights the entire earth. And so his entire view of reality would change dramatically when he escaped the cave. But then this one who escaped would go back into the cave and would explain to those others who were still chained there what reality is on the outside. And how few of them would believe him. How few of them would believe that there's a reality outside of what they have experienced themselves. And so the point that Plato's making is that there's often a reality very different from what we see and feel. That empirical reality. There's something more than that. Now for Plato, the one who escapes and returns is the philosopher. So the philosopher is the one who comes back and rationally explains all of reality. But we know now to take this analogy from Plato and make it our own, that it is Christ who has given us a light and explains to us, and he brings this message to us. And so that's what we speak of, Christ having a threefold office, one of a prophet and a priest and a king. A prophet is one who brings God's message to humanity. Christ serves in the office of a prophet, bringing God's message to us. And so the prophet is one who deals with our ignorance. As a priest... The priest now stands between man and God. The priest advocates on behalf of humanity to God. And so the priest deals with our alienation from God. And so on the one hand, Christ deals with our ignorance. On the other hand, he deals with our alienation. And he solves both of them. And the promise is ultimately wrapped up and fulfilled when Christ becomes king. And that's what's happening in this passage, as we will see in coming weeks. His ultimate goal is to establish his kingdom on earth. And so we see this analogy, this picture, this cave, this deficit in our understanding that people have. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, don't go back to the shadows. Those sacrifices were nothing but shadows. Now, they would have thought about those sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter 16, there's that long description of what happened on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. 
And there was this picture of Aaron, as God directed Moses to tell Aaron that on the Day of Atonement, you as the high priest would go into the inner sanctum, would sacrifice a bull as your sin offering and take a goat also, and you would sacrifice the goat on behalf of your sin so that Aaron himself could be purified of sin, at least have this covering, and then the goat on behalf of the people. But there would be a second goat, so two goats were involved. One was sacrificed as a sin offering, and the other goat, chosen by, randomly by lots, Aaron would put his hands on and pray and let him know that this goat is bearing the sins of the nation. And so he put his hands on this goat and confess the sins of the nation and send that goat out. And the goat would go out into the wilderness and be led away and be gone forever. And it was a picture of the Jewish people that in Christ, or in God, in these sacrifices, our sins are removed from us. But what Hebrews is now doing is telling us that in Christ, our sins are now removed from us, and there's no longer a need for any further sacrifices. And so the entire Leviticus scheme in chapter 16 with his Day of Atonement had as its purpose an illustration of what Christ would do ultimately for us. And that's the point that he's making here in these passages, that Christ is merciful in that he came and did all this for us. Now, continuing in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, these sacrifices, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. And so he's making the point, clearly, that if the Old Testament shadows, which pointed to Christ, if those Old Testament sacrifices were fully effective, then they would have been able to stop them. But they couldn't. They had to do them every day, continually pursue these same sacrifices. And so they never left this scene. They always had this reminder of their own sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, continual sacrifices. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Think about that point. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That would have hit and landed on first century Jews with a great thud. For many of them, they knew there was a coming Messiah. But for many others, these continual sacrifices was the only way God would ever deal with their sin. And now, the preacher of Hebrews says, no, it's done. They never could have taken care of your sin. Now we need Christ. And that's this first point. Our high priest is merciful. Beginning in verse 5, our second point, our high priest fulfilled God's eternal plan. This is an eternal plan that God has in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In bird offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This passage here reminds us that there's one eternal plan that God had, and it always involved Christ, that Christ would be that ultimate sacrifice. Theologians talk about the active obedience and passive obedience of Christ, his active obedience being the fact that when he came to earth, he did all the law required. He fulfilled its requirements perfectly in every way. His passive obedience meaning that he offered himself passively as a sacrifice and was made that ultimate sacrifice for us. 
And so this active and passive obedience idea is the idea that Christ completely and fully did everything necessary for our, us, our sin, on our behalf. And it's complete. And that's the point he makes here. And he speaks of this great plan that there is. And so the Jewish people would have, would have wondered, you know, how does these sacrifices come to be? And how is Christ now this sacrifice? Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 11... We read there, What to me is a multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And he speaks Isaiah here to the Jewish people 700 years before Christ, 700 years earlier, and says that these sacrifices have no meaning if you're not faithful, they have no value if you're not true to God's word, true to his calling. And so there's a, a lack there, um, something missing. They're not permanent. But of course, Christ now comes as that ultimate sacrifice. And this we call the incarnation, when the second person of the Trinity leaves heaven and becomes a man in his birth. You can only imagine that, that moment when Jesus is now born, having left heaven, and God and him knowing that this was a plan from the beginning, that there was always this plan in place, that there would be this plan that would bring salvation. And so in uh, Isaiah 53, you want to hit that again, Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah continues the same idea here in chapter 53, that there is a Messiah coming who would carry our sins. And Christ is the fulfillment of that. And we have our sins taken care of in Christ. And so many Jewish people would have been looking forward to that time when a Messiah is coming and came for them. Many others missed it when he did come. And so we see this, this continual message here. Now, for many Jews, again, this idea of these continual sacrifices could become something sort of, uh, of, a, of a habit, of a routine, and lose its meaning and its significance. And so there was always these warnings from the prophets that don't just think your sacrifices by themselves are enough, but what God requires is obedience. As Isaiah says, and Psalm 40 says the same thing, that you have to obey. Obey is better than sacrifice. And all of that's important. And sometimes by routine, we lose the sense of it all. Now, maybe this is not entirely fair of, of all doctors, and, and not Bentley at all. But, you know, doctors, they, they walk down a hallway, perhaps, of a, a geriatric ward, and they're given a message that the patient in, in room 705 has died and, and didn't survive your surgery. And the doctor says, oh, all right, who's in 706? And they just kind of move on. And you might think, oh, they should have broken down and wept and cried for the poor patient that they lost. But doctors don't care. Why? Because there's another one behind them. There's a routine. They have to keep moving on, keep going on. And not Bentley, of course. But, <laughs> but other doctors, they, they just, so the routine of it and the constant confronting of death becomes something that they can shut off from their own emotions. 
And for the Jewish people, these sacrifices would be something they could shut off and say, you know what, it just happens. It's a routine we do. And they lose and lost the significance of it. And the message of Hebrews is to don't miss it, the great sacrifice that Christ made. And sometimes for us, we do the Lord's table every Sunday. We can make it a routine where we fail to remember its great significance. But we need to keep thinking about what it really represents, what Christ has done for us. And that's what Hebrews is warning us against, making things too routine and not taking them as seriously as we should. Our third point begins in verse 8. In verse 8, chapter 10, verse 8, our high priest has defeated sin. And when he said above, quoting above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will that he came to do, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ, in coming, ultimately defeats sin itself. There was the old covenant. The old covenant which had these sacrifices that only covered them temporarily. But Christ, the great high priest, comes and offers himself as that final and perfect sacrifice. And again, he says here in this passage that, uh, it's, we've, been made, uh, that we've been sanctified through the offering. We have been sanctified. And you hear those words together. We have been sanctified. That's one word in Greek. We have been sanctified. It's a perfect tense, which has the idea of it being complete. It's something in the past that has continuing results. We have been sanctified. And here he's talking about that positional sanctification. Now, sanctification simply means to be set apart or separated. And in our positional sanctification, we've been separated from the sin that we had, and set apart unto God. So we are positionally in a new place, positionally sanctified. We are now always and forever forgiven. In Colossians chapter 3, there is uh, warnings that Paul gives that might help us with more of the practical sanctification. Chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on, do not lie to one another. Uh, put off the old self. Put on the new self. And he warns us against uh, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. All of that has to do with our practical sanctification. So if we are people who have been set apart positionally in Christ, set apart for God in forgiveness then practically it should have some reflection in our daily life. And that's what Paul is warning the Colossian believers and all of us as well, that we have to live a life consistent with our new nature, our new position in Christ. And so he speaks here of us being sanctified, about being set apart. And so these sacrifices were really a a picture of what Christ was to perform. But they could never perform what Christ had ultimately procured for us. These sacrifices were a picture reminding us continually of our sin in the Old Testament. But they were a picture of what Christ would one day come and do as he made himself the ultimate sacrifice. But in that picture, they could never perform and accomplish what Christ himself procures for us. And that's ultimate and final and permanent forgiveness. And that's what this idea of sanctification has here. 
as the psalmist says, our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We have that ultimate forgiveness. Our fourth point, beginning in verse 11. Our high priest has defeated all of his enemies. In chapter 10, verse 11, through verse 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so there's this contrast between the Old Testament priests who stood daily and continually made sacrifices, and a contrast between that and Christ who made one sacrifice and then sat down, having accomplished it. In the Old Testament, they couldn't sit down because it had to keep going on. So they stood daily, every day, reminding themselves of their sin. Every day, Christ makes one sacrifice that's permanent. He now sits down at the right hand of God, showing that it's now accomplished, showing that it's now finished. And so we see this ultimate final defeat. Now our enemies, we know, are sin, Satan, and death. Sin is defeated on the cross because Christ has come and done what now the law required, fulfilling it completely, and now offers forgiveness to those who believe. Satan is defeated. Ultimately, Satan will be defeated. We'll come back to that. Death is defeated. In the resurrection, death is now defeated. You think about the world we're living in now, between the cross and the ultimate establishment of God's kingdom. Where are we at now? We're living in a world where the cross is behind us, where forgiveness is now offered, but we don't have it ultimately, finally, all perfected in our world. It's a hostile world. Nevertheless, the Bible tells us that Christ has already won the victory. Now, if any of you play chess, you might know who Magnus Carlsen is. Does anybody know Magnus Carlsen? Of course. Uh, he is the world's greatest chess player by a long shot. And he became the world's greatest chess player when he was only 18. Like nobody in the world could beat him when he was 18. And he's now 30, so about the last 13 years, he's just won match after match after match. And he's now got a channel on YouTube that you can watch. And what he does on this channel is he plays people. And so it's electronic chess, and you can see the game there. And it's got Carlson he's talking about as the match is unfolding. And so the other opponent will move. They're always white, he's always black. They move first and then he responds. And by the second or third moves, he already knows what your offense is. He knows your strategy. And so he can call it out and identify what you're doing. And then by the fourth or fifth or sixth move, he can already proclaim victory. And he does. Now you might look at the chessboard and say, well, you haven't checkmated him yet. You're not finished yet. There's still moves and this guy could do all sorts of different things. But Carlson is already ahead of that. He already knows he's defeated you. And he already announces your defeat. And the chess match might go on for a few more minutes back and forth until he finally finishes it off. And that's exactly what Christ has done. We may think the chess match is still going on, but the victory's already won. Satan's already checkmated. And, the, and it, it's already accomplished. And so we now live in a world where we are on the winning side. We know it's already finished. We're just kind of doing the mop-up details in this world, in our life, until Christ returns and ultimately redeems this world with all of those who are believers. And so this is already accomplished. And even though we might feel that uh, sin has not been defeated, that the suffering that we see in this world, it goes unanswered, there is an ultimate justice that comes because God has already accomplished in Christ 
all that's necessary to bring final justice and peace to this world. And so that's the message that Hebrews is giving us, is that there is a final and ultimate victory coming. Number five, our high priest offers true forgiveness. Chapter 10, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so we see that our, our, our high priest offers ultimate and final and perfect forgiveness. And so we live in a world where forgiveness is being offered and rejected by so many. And it's offered, as we've seen throughout Hebrews, based on what Christ has accomplished. In part the reason many people struggle with accepting forgiveness is because they've been taught to look away from their guilt. Now, psychologically, we know that guilt can be a very powerful thing. And for many people, guilt can be a tool they use to manipulate others. For others, guilt is a tool others use to manipulate you. For many others, guilt becomes something of a feeling they try and escape. And for many, many years, psychology tried to find a way of dealing with people's guilt. And the church and Christians, in their preaching, many uh, uh, iterations of it, followed secular psychology in accomplishing the same point. And so if we think of guilt in terms of the guilty feelings people experience, we might think that we can get rid of guilt by by, uh, certain strategies. If guilt is simply a feeling that we have because society has pushed a standard on us or our parents has pushed a standard on us that we can't meet up to, or the church has done the same, then what we need to do is reject society's standards, reject our parents' standards, And that then removes the guilt they feel. And so we live in a culture, in a secularized culture, where people now think they can escape their guilt by redefining who they are. Now, guilt for many people has manifestations. People have problems. They have anxiety. They have anger. They have bitterness. And all these things we feel and fear often have as their root a guilt underneath. And so it may simply be guilt that's driving their anger in many ways. It's driving their anxiety because when others criticize you, you may say, oh, that's an unfair criticism. I hate when they criticize me. That's not fair. But deep down, you know that, that your criticism is not only fair, but you're a much worse person than even your critic knows. And so we all have to deal with guilt in some way. Now, the thing about guilt is it's not just a subjective feeling. It's not just a feeling of guilty feelings that people have. Those guilty feelings happen because there's an objective reality to it. There's a moral principle in the universe that when you break God's law, there's an absolute moral objective guilt that goes with it. We stand before God as guilty as those who violated God's laws. And because of that, we have guilty feelings. So our conscience points to our guilty feelings. Our our conscience points to us and reminds us that we're not perfect that we have sinned and violated God's law. And so that's why we have guilty feelings. That's what a good conscience is. Now, a hundred years ago, feeling guilt was a good thing. You were commended when you were as a child felt guilty for what you had done. Now it's thought to be a bad thing. You should not feel guilty. You should reject all of that. So guilt has an objective reality that manifests itself 
in our world, in our person. But forgiveness does as well. Forgiveness is what people are looking for. Now, how do they get forgiveness? Well, they may try and first reject the guilt by calling it a maladjustment, reject things, or ask for forgiveness in some way and try and paper it behind them. But the things that people do always stay with them. And even if a secularized person who's been told through many, many years of growing that you can put this guilt aside and not feel guilty for the things you've done against society or your parents or your church or whatever, still there's a small voice in your head that says you, you have violated God's law. You have sinned. And so there, there's always this feeling that people have. Christ comes and says you can have true forgiveness. Now, just as guilt has both a subjective feeling and an objective reality, so forgiveness has a subjective feeling and an objective reality. Forgiveness is something we should, as believers, be able to feel and experience, to know you're forgiven, to know that in Christ your sins have been paid for and you are forgiven because you're objectively forgiven. Just as the objective guilt condemned you, now the objective forgiveness we have in Christ heals our sin. Our sins are forgiven. They're set aside. They're separated from us. And these two realities is what drives believers to know that we can be forgiven. Now, in the past, we can begin in the, the 60s, 70s, 80s. We know we lived in a culture where the sexual revolution was going on and people were being told to cast off those, those rules, those uh, obligations. Uh, you are now a free speech movement came and all these things were happening, and the secular world began to just cast off all these things that made you feel guilty. And so you were free to do whatever you wanted, free to do anything without any sense of guilt. Curiously, in the past few years, we now live in a world where secular culture, what we call the cancel culture, is now calling you guilty for all sorts of things you had nothing to do with. And so now guilt is being thrown around against everybody and everywhere all the time. And what's interesting is in the past, the same people who said you could live a guilt-free life now also would say that you can't have a forgived life in this world. If you violated some rule in the past, you made some tweet, and you see these stories where some poor high school kid tweeted out something that was off-color or not appropriate, they lose a college scholarship. And there's one story of a woman who I care nothing about. Uh, she was, I think, made editor of Vogue magazine, a magazine I've never read and care nothing about. But the story is that she was made editor of this magazine, and some staffers of the magazine found that she, some 10 years ago, made some comment against something, perhaps transgender athletes or something, I don't know. But she made some comment a decade ago for which she's actually changed. And so she's absolutely liberal, apostate, secular, the whole thing, as, as all could be. But for that world, there's no forgiveness. And so she lost a job as editor of the magazine, even though she was everything that magazine embodies. And so for those same people that now project guilt everywhere, they project forgiveness in so few places. You can't be forgiven. But in Christ, we know that there is forgiveness that can be had. Now, one of the great theologians uh, of uh, this past century was John Stott. I have a quote from John Stott I want to read just to give us some thought to this. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, a book that many of you have read, he has a quote in there that goes this. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. 
The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's where we act like we can be God. When we deny that there's a God, and the secular world does, then we get to make our own rules and we get to be God. And what Stott is saying is, is that's what sin is. It's you saying that you get to be God and make your own rules and do your own thing. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And that's the cross, where Christ now substitutes himself in the incarnation and becomes a man so that we can be forgiven. And then he continues, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. We establish ourselves and put ourselves where we think uh, we deserve to be, but that's where God deserves to be. So it's kind of like impersonating a police officer or stolen valor or something like that. We act like we get to be God and people feel comfortable with that. Now I have at home uh, a, a shirt, a military uniform, has Carmichael on the front, and it has a colonel. It's got badges all over it. Now if I wore that, that would be stolen valor. That's not my shirt. That's my dad's shirt. Now I have one, had lieutenant on it, but not colonel. And so I couldn't wear his. And if I did, all of you would condemn me for it. Why do you think you could walk around wearing colonels, uh, badges, stripes, all these things? Well, we do even worse than that when we act like we can be God. And so we supplant God. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. And so God puts himself in Christ on the cross, suffering for sin where we deserve to be. You think about what Christ does on the cross. Jesus is the only person who ever chose death. Now, we often talk about a person, even a military person on Memorial Day, makes a sacrifice and gives their life, gives their life for another. And we understand what we mean by that. But picture a situation where a parent sees their child in the street in a speeding car coming down, and the parent runs forward, pushes their child out of the way, and is killed by the car. We might say that that parent sacrificed their life for their child. But all that parent really did was postpone the death of their child by moving the time of their own death upward. But both ultimately were going to die. So in this world, there is that. We can postpone the life of the death of another person, but we can't escape it. Jesus is the only person who ever chose death. We will experience it. He chose it on our behalf. So he made a sacrifice of death that he wouldn't have to have made if it were not for our sin. And that becomes the greatness of what Christ does for us. In the cross, he comes down to earth and makes that sacrifice to pay for sin that we couldn't pay for on our own. The message of Hebrews has been to remind these people continually that in Christ we can have that forgiveness. And we can know that in Jesus, it's an objective reality. And there need be no further sacrifices. There need be no other uh, things in our life, asking for forgiveness. It's all done. We ask forgiveness for our daily sins, but we know objectively in Christ it's all accomplished. And if that message doesn't change us and move us, we don't want to be like those Jewish priests or Jewish believers who fell in the routine of thinking that we can just kind of go through this life without sensing the burden of our sin. In fact, to the extent that you recognize the extent of your sin, you recognize the greatness of forgiveness. And for a person who denies their sin, puts it aside, believes they've been a pretty good life and done well enough, they can't experience the depth of, of Christ's forgiveness. 
But as we look at reality and see the depth of our sin, we now can know the greatness of the forgiveness that Christ has offered to us. And that should motivate us and move us every day. So let's keep that in mind as we proceed this week. Let's stand as we pray and dismiss. Our Father, as we look to this great passage and remember again, as you've said so many times through Hebrews, we have Jesus as our great high priest who advocates on our behalf, and in him we have that ultimate and final forgiveness of sins. And may we keep that up front in our mind, knowing continually and forever that our sin has been forgiven, but never forget the greatness of the sin we had, even though it's been separated from us. We thank you for that forgiveness, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.